Today's podcast is sponsored by Fire Facilities Incorporated, expert engineers, designers, and manufacturers of steel training towers, burn rooms, and mobile units that are all made in the USA. Welcome back to Three Point Firefighter. Today, my guest is Frank Lieb. Now, Frank Lieb is a Deputy Assistant Chief in the FDNY, and he's the Acting Chief of Training. Frank has been a member of the FDNY since 1992, and he's a member of East Farmingdale Fire Department in Long Island, New York, and he's been doing that since 1983. He holds a Bachelor's Degree in Fire Service Administration from SUNY, a Master's Degree in Security Studies from the Naval Postgraduate School. Chief Lieb, thank you so much for being on my show. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So I want to tell you a little bit how, I mean, you remember this, but I'm going to let the listeners know what happened. So I'm extremely fortunate to work with some great instructors in the ISFSI. We get tasked with coming to uh, the FDNY, The Rock, to deliver two classes back-to-back basement fire. So we get up there. It's really exciting. And that's where I meet you. And on our first day of actually doing the class, you were there. And you said, hey, listen, I'm really busy but uh, I'm going to be ducking in and out of the classes. So for us, what we've seen in the past is when you see a chief or somebody coming in and they say duck in out of classes or kind of coming there to watch, and then they go back and have to do work. And I understand that they're busy. I got no problem with that. But the next thing we know, me and uh, uh, my brother Brad French, we see you bunker, bunkered out. You've got your black tie on, your white shirt underneath, and your collar brass, and you're going to work. I mean, you were doing everything, and you caught – my like the first half or a lot of the, a lot the first day. And then the second day we delivered the exact same class and you came the second day and did all the things uh, you didn't get to do on the first day. So you were working as a uh, training chief and jumping in and out, doing all the stuff. It really, really impressed us. Uh, That's amazing leadership, brother. That's amazing leadership. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a firefighter, right? So I, I love getting in there and, and doing it. And, um, uh, I was excited to get out to have the opportunity to do there and, and kind of I didn't want to be disrespectful to the instructors. So that's why I let you know that, hey, I got to duck in and out. I have meetings. I did the best I could clearing my schedule. But my goal was over the two days to sit in one entire day. Um, and I did that. I sat in on everything over the two days. And a couple of the things that I enjoyed on day one, I sat in the second time uh, on day two. And, you know, I got just about 30 years in the FDNY and I'm, I'm into learning and, and something, uh, you know, it's a good day when you learn something new and, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a probie or you got, well, you got 30 or 40 years on the job. It doesn't matter. And, uh, I really believe learning from, you can learn something from everybody as well. Right. So we had instructors, um, quality instructors from all over the country. So, you know, teach me, show me, show me something new. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I know this. I personally was a little nervous coming up there. Uh, and when I got up there and there was there's a bunch of us in there and I'm sure I wasn't the only instructor a little bit nervous. I mean, you're, you're going to FDNY, you're going to the, the largest fire department in the world. And and I mean this wholeheartedly. Every single firefighter I met was not only just polite, but they were super nice, super knowledgeable and just super friendly. And it just it amazed me because I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, I guess, you know, I don't know, but every single person was like, hey, how are you? What can I do for you? 
Yeah, it is. You know, so the brother and sisterhood is strong, right? And um, perhaps nowhere is it stronger than in the FDNY. It is. Uh, it's in the very fabric of of what we do, the very fabric of our culture. It's in our DNA, who we draw to to the job. And you know, I think coming and teaching at the FDNY Fire Academy is intimidating. It's everybody knows. I can show a picture of the FDNY Fire Academy, and it's iconic. Most people would recognize that from another fire academy uh, in in seconds. So, um, yeah, to have the opportunity to come here, the FDNY firefighter smells bullshit a mile away. So you better come with some experience um, and and know what you're talking about. And if you do, you know um, you're going to have a you, you know you'll usually have a great experience uh, teaching here. And I think you know that group of instructors. Um, did a really nice job. Actually, I know they did. Oh. They, I, since I sat in on so much of it, I could say firsthand um, that they did a, a really nice job. And I got a lot of great feedback, which is pretty typical. Um, we don't bring just any program to the FDNY Fire Academy. Um, you know, one of my jobs is to make sure that I'm bringing high quality training here, that I'm not wasting anybody's time, uh, both the instructors and, and my firefighters. Um, but I like to bring in... Um, outsiders to the FDNY um, because cross-pollinization, different fostering of different ideas and methodologies, I think is, uh, is good. It opens your, opens your mind, widens your aperture on what's out there and what we can learn because, hey, we're willing to learn and adapt from anybody. You got, you got a better way of doing something? Let us know. And, you know, and I'm sure you know this as well, when, even when you're an instructor, it's, it's, it's teaching, but you end up learning just as much as you're teaching. And obviously, when we were there at The Rock, we learned an awful lot about how you all do things. And we watched your training uh, probies while we were there. And I'll tell you what, we do a little sidebar. So my new recruits hated that I went to The Rock. So I had a brand new group of recruits. They were about halfway through their academy when I went up there. And I saw your all's motivation alley. So I took that back to my guys. I had two guys and a girl in my academy. And I, I mimicked it as best I could with, with what I had. And boy, did they hate me. They said, don't ever go back to New York City. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about Motivation Alley for those that don't know? Yeah. So, you know, um, probie school in the FDMY is hard. Um, and it's hard because the, the job of a firefighter is hard. Um, and one of the early things that they do is um, uh, we call it Motivation Alley. And they got to stretch. They do an inch and three quarter on one day and they do a two and a half inch line on the other day. And they got to stretch the line without shutting it down. They got to, you know, um, go the full length of a, of a hose or then even a little bit more than that um, with the encouragement of of their other firefighters, right, that are in their platoon. Um, but it's not only the individual, right? So the individual is on the nozzle, but it's a team concept. And it's to instill that early on as they're rooting for them. Um, and that's an, that's an important part of that. You start to see them transition from, uh, from a probie civilian, right, to uh, to a, a, a firefighter that understands the value of teamwork. I mean, in the, in the FDNY, all of our procedures are based on the team concept. Um, there's individuals that do action, you know, specific actions or jobs and tasks, but it's all based on the team concept. If someone doesn't do their job, the whole team fails. And likewise, when when somebody when everybody does their job, um, and somebody makes a grab, we go to medal day. The individual gets the accolades, but everybody's happy for them because it's a company, it's, you know, the company pride, right? And that we all played a part of that. Even as the incident commander, this medal day, there's a couple of people getting medals for incidents that I was at. And I'm proud of it because I was part of that. I was part of that incident 
Um, even though I wasn't in there making the grab, right? But we were, right? So he st- he got his training somewhere. He he got his start. He well, everything, the whole aspect, right? It's really the it's the t- totality of the job. Um, the majority of of rescues really are the whole team deserves the credit. There's occasionally where it's a an individual act that's just above and beyond, especially when no one else is on scene or something like that. But it's a team. It's the greatest team sport there is. I could agree more. And it shows that the teamwork, the brother and sisterhood is is alive and well in FDNY. Now, what got you started in the fire service? What made you say, you know what? I don't want to be a dentist. I want to be a firefighter. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I was seven years old um, when my older brother, Bobby, joined the volunteer fire department. And he brought me up there all the time. So my earliest memories are of going and, and seeing the firefighters in East Farmingdale and them really being like a second family to me. Um, and then there were several firefighters that were in East Farmingdale that were New York City firefighters. And they were just like, a, they were so into it. They were just uh, their level of, of training and dedication. And I'm like, wow, like I wasn't sure that I can do that. Right. Um, just thinking like these guys, some of them were just incredible firefighters. And, um, you know, and they encouraged me and my brother encouraged me to become, you know, take the, the test. And uh, I took the test basically when I was uh, uh, I was like 17 and a half was like the minimum age you could be. And I had just made the cutoff. So I was pretty young when I took the test. I got I was I was one of the youngest at the time to get on. Uh, I got on when I was 23 years old um, and. It's just always something I've always wanted to do. When I was old enough to join the junior fire department in East Farmingdale, I joined there. That was when I was 14 years old. And then at, at 17 years old, I became, uh, you know, a regular, uh, you know, a, a firefighter. And there were, there were five of us from my graduating high school class. In our um, and wow. Yeah. So and the majority of us are still active in the volunteer fire department that were on that original picture of of five. So that's, you know, that's. That's pretty cool. All these uh, all these years later, that, that that's where we're at. Yeah. So you never had a chance. There was never, you know, I'm going to grow up and be a lawyer, doctor, fighter pilot. You're like, no, firefighter. No. So I, I wanted to, you know, I remember as a young kid, the, the um, construction crew was digging up my road and my mom would tell me I wanted to be a digger man. Um, other than that, so um, <laughs> it was either that or a firefighter. I never wanted to be anything else. I mean, I had other jobs while I was waiting to be a firefighter, but it was it was always about it was always about being a firefighter. It was, uh, and to this day, I tell people I couldn't dream of doing anything else. I absolutely love what I do. People say, "What do you do for a hobby?" I'm like, you know, um, I I love hanging out with my children. I love hanging out with my with my granddaughter now. I love hanging out with my wife. Um, I enjoy I enjoy fishing and golf and things like that. I love traveling, but man, I just love being a firefighter and. Uh, teaching or reading and doing other things that are involved with my with my profession. So I say, being a firefighter is in is is my job, and and to some degrees it's my hobby because I just enjoy it. Whether it's just in my off time, just writing an article about something that you get an idea, and the next thing you know, um, you know, I could I could be on a plane going to teach somewhere, and I'll write an entire article on my phone on the airplane. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> so what's a, what were some of your assignments when you first when you get when you left the rock as a probie where did you go that brought you all the way up to where you're at now back at the rock yeah so i um again i would have never thought that i'd wind up uh, at the rock later in my career that's for sure but um i graduated probie school uh the end of 92 just in time to go and 
be there for New Year's. Um, I get to Engine 323 in Brooklyn, and uh, I worked there for a bunch of years. Um, in February of, of 93, I catch a, a really good job, and uh, I have a really good officer, this Captain Gene McGowan. Uh, I catch a really good fire with him. Um, we, 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 burn, we burn our ears. A bunch of people wound up going to the burn center. I didn't need to go to the burn center. I went back to the firehouse and, uh, you know, with my burnt ears along with the captain and uh, recovered. Uh, so I learned a lot of lessons from him. A lot of good mentors in my career. He certainly wanted them. Um, and then uh, they formed the squad companies in 1998. And I went to, um, went to the, had the tryouts for it. And at the tryouts were all the captains of the companies. And um, Jerry Tracy was there. He's, he was, he was going to be the captain of Squad 18. And Tom Richardson was there. He was going to be the captain of Squad 270. And he, when he was a captain covering in the 15th Division, where I was a firefighter in 323, he did a vacation there. So, you know, we were drilling and he's really into the job. And he saw I was really into the job. So when he saw me at the tryouts, he just asked me, you know, what my career aspirations are, stuff like that. A couple of days later, Richard, you know, Tom Richardson gives me a call and he's like, uh, bro, I'm, uh, I'm taking you to squad 270. So, and then, so uh, as a bonehead, what do I say? I said, where is that? <laughs> like, um, I had no idea where that, where that company was located, but, um, this was an opportunity to be in, in special operations. Um, I would have went to any of the companies, any of the squads that would have, um, that wanted my, uh, wanted to take a chance with me. I only had five and a half years on the fire department when I went. Um, but I had the one thing, um, I had the two things that you really can't teach, right? I had the heart and I was extremely into the job and, um, I didn't know how to use all the tools and stuff because I, because I was into it because of my, my time in East Farmingdale, um, especially the, you know, the truck tools considering I was in an engine. Um, so he took a chance on me. I did just about five years in 270. Um, I got promoted out of there. Uh, I was in 270, uh, for nine 11. I was off that day. Uh, my company um, was uh, was fortunate that we didn't we didn't lose anybody, but um, special operations lost a, an unbelievable amount of people, um, and many of those people I knew from when they formed the squads in 1998. So, uh, like like everybody on the job, we lost uh, a lot of our good friends, um, and it really changed how how the FDNY operates, how SOC was. Even after that, some of our members went to. Uh, they transferred to other companies within the command, you know, rescue one, rescue two, some other companies where, where our members went to help fill in because those companies were, were decimated. Um, I take the lieutenant's test and, uh, I get promoted to lieutenant and then I work in, uh, engine 324 in, in Queens and with a satellite unit. So being promoted out of, um, out of a squad, that was perfect because they went on all second alarms. Um, and so I was in Queens, so I was familiar with the Chiefs in the 13th Division. Now I'm in quarters with the 14th Division. So all the Chiefs that are going to be putting me to work, I would, the satellite goes when there's a water supply issue, right? If you, That's when they really need you. Um, but if there's no water supply issue, I would tell the Chief, hey, Chief, you have plenty of water. Uh, we're available if you need us to do something else. So my guys would always joke around um, and, um, uh, you know, that we were like squad light, they would call us. like Because, because we had this uh, – I had a um, – I had a, a mini Halligan that one of the members went, uh, made me when I got promoted out of squad. Um, so it was like half the size of a regular Halligan. And the guys there, they nicknamed it the Liebigen. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we were single engine. And my thing is, I know how to force a door. So, um, you know, we get in before the truck. 
I'm not waiting for someone else to force the door. I'm going to force the door, you know, tell my guys to stretch the line, tell my firefighter to stretch the line, and I'm going to start forcing the door. Um, you know, so multiple times at fires, I would have, you know, enforce the door, control the door, maybe get in there, get a quick little search, um, you know, while my guys and girls are stretching stretching the hose line up to, you know, wherever third or fourth floor, wherever the fire is. Um, so I loved it there. I had a, had a great time there. Um, I was working there when actually when I um, – I came in one night and um, they were looking. For, we were going to be deployed to New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and they come in and they're like, "Hey, you want to go uh, to New Orleans?" I'm like, "Sure, when?" And they're like, uh, "Midnight tonight." So they got someone to relieve me. I went home. I packed up and was back at Kennedy Airport by uh, by midnight for the first deployment to uh, to New Orleans for Katrina. Talking about Katrina could be a whole show on its own. Um, but just an amazing, <laughs> an amazing experience down there working with the New Orleans firefighters, just an incredibly dedicated group of people. Uh, we worked with them. We worked with some of the members of the Chicago Fire Department down there. Uh, tremendous experience in my career. Um, I studied. I got promoted to captain. Uh, I went on to work in 76 Engine in Manhattan uh, on the Upper West Side. So we got a little bit, a little taste of, of all the different action not far from Columbia University. We'd get relocated into Midtown, so I got some Midtown time. We'd go up into uh, Harlem a little bit, so we'd catch some work up there. So it was a pretty pretty diverse area. Uh, studied again, got promoted to Battalion Chief, went out to Queens in the 4-6 Battalion uh, in Elmhurst, Elmhurst Eagles. Um, that firehouse goes out the door about 14,000 times a year, amount of runs between the truck engine and chief. And it was great. I worked there for uh, like eight years and just a an incredibly diverse area, a ton of work, and just loved it there. Got promoted, went to deputy chief, worked in lower Manhattan in the 1st Division. Um, incredibly knowledgeable firefighters uh, in the 1st Division on their area. Just, I was blown away at the knowledge level of, of the firefighters uh, there. There's so many different variations of buildings there. Nothing, no run is, is even close to routine there. Um, and anywhere in Manhattan. And... Um, I did 18 months there when they asked me uh, to be, uh, you know, to be the chief of the fire academy. And when you're asked to be the chief of the fire academy, you, you don't say no, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> in the FDNY. So I was blessed to do that position for um, a little over two years. Um, then my boss, who was the chief of training, re retired. And then they asked me to be the acting chief of training Um uh, you, you know, at some point, maybe they'll make me the chief of training. We'll see how they how that goes. But and that's where I am. That's where I am now. And um, I love the position. I think I could uh, impact uh, impact the FDNY and really just improve upon the uh, really what was established by so many great chiefs and, and leaders here before me. And I'm able to start at such a high point because their bar was already so high. So I'm able to implement a lot of innovative things uh, and ideas that some of the more ideas I got from previous people that I worked under here. Because I've, I've, I've been involved with training. I'm like every firefighter. I didn't want to come offline. But if you wanted me to help train, mm -hmm. I was all into it. Because as you mentioned earlier, um, I learn just as much as, as, um, as you teach. In fact, so many of the classes, I was more of a facilitator, right? And just pulling information out of, out of it because I, the, the experience level is so high. Um, and eventually you just learn so many different things from different firefighters and fire officers from different parts of the city. And they tell you, well, this is how I do it. And I'm like, wow, that, that's freaking great. And the next thing you know, I'm sharing that information with the next group 
that's from another area of the city. And that cross-pollinization, even when the, within the FDNY, um, was really important. And to be able to get that by bringing in, in other classes and stuff like that, that cross-pollinization around the country, I think, is, is uh, very beneficial for, for everybody. I, I agree. I could agree more. I, I tell you, that, so we kind of talked a little bit before we start recording. So when I got in the fire service a long time ago, I was totally hooked on all things FDNY. I don't know what sent me down that path, but I was hooked. So uh, your report from Engine Company 82, uh, let's say 20,000 alarms, anything by Vince Dunn, blah, blah, blah. So as a young firefighter, anything and everything I could get out of there, I was pretty excited about. <clears throat> and uh, fast forward to where we were coming up there, uh, and me and, and all of the instructors were so excited about coming up there. So the f- night we flew in, um, we my friend called me. He'd already landed. He goes, hey, man, we're going to go to uh, Rescue One and see Cirillo. Do you want to go? First off, he said, do you want to go? That's about the dumbest question I think I've ever been asked. I'm like, yes. <laughs> let me Literally, let me kick open my hotel door, throw my stuff. I'm going. So now keep in mind, I've never been ever, anywhere near New York City. So I'd already been flying for quite a few hours. I'm a little sluggish, but boy, I was happy. We go in there. I get to see Cap Cirillo and his crew, and it's like 10 o'clock at night. They make us coffee. They treated us like like we were, we, we worked there. I mean, they were just with respect, and they were nice, and I, it was just an amazing thing. And so I'm looking at my buddy Gilbert. I'm like, I'm like, dude, we're drinking coffee in Rescue One's house. This is like the coolest thing ever. Fast forward to tom- the next morning. We roll on in the morning to the rock to set things up, and it just blew us away. The complete size of what you have to command, that building after building, prop after prop, and it just seemed like it, as Captain Cirillo walked us around and said, hey, here's this, here's this, here's this, it never ended. It didn't stop. Like, I, I thought for sure, I had no idea how big an area it is. You have the, uh, one of the things I thought was neat was the subway uh, simulator. It's amazing. How do you handle all of the different buildings, the the tons of personnel? I mean, all the equipment. That's got to be a logistical nightmare for you. Well, so it's it all it all starts and ends with making sure that you have quality people working for you. And we have exceptional people working at the fire academy. Um, you know, I, I I tell people all the time. I say I don't need to micromanage my team. Um, I just tell them this is what I expect. They know the leader's intent. They know what we're trying to do, and and they go after it. And you know, um, <coughs> I'm never disappointed. My people never disappoint me. They are. Um, I tell them what I want, and they always exceed my expectations. And you know, uh, I don't <coughs> by not micromanaging. Hey, this is what we want to do. We want to train firefighters on whatever whatever it is that we want to do. Come up with a game plan and let me know what you want to do. They always exceed whatever expectation I had in my mind. That's what firefighters do. That's in our DNA as well, right? So it doesn't matter what it is. Um, when it comes to that, you know, I'll occasionally give, you know, hey, all right, maybe can we just change this to do that or whatever. Um, but the, tri- the the caliber of people we have here is the key to the whole operation. There's no doubt about that. And I have so many different people that work for the Bureau of Training. Um, so many, in fact, that I don't know them all. And people are like, what do you mean you don't know them all? I say, well, you know, I have the subway extrication unit. They have, you know, a couple of guys assigned to their unit. Then they bring in people for the day or the week. There's a lot of those instructors that come in like that. But that's part of the beauty of it is that, you know, last night, that firefighter worked in the field. 
And then they're bringing back that experience. They may have had an incident, whatever, a fire, whatever it is. And they're passing that information on along the very next day sometimes. And the credibility of that um, is, is really good. And so we have our, our core group of, of key instructors that are, that are assigned to the fire academy. And then they use others that come and go sometimes for a day, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a couple of months. And then they go back to the field and then they come back. And um, But they're, they're usually seasoned firefighters that have some time on a job that want to give back and help out, right? Because they that, that whole mentoring our next generation of firefighters and, and fire officers is another thing that's just ingrained into our culture from day one, right? And it's why we have the caliber of probie class instructors that we have. Because coming to teach probie class, you have to commit for three classes. That's, you know, there's usually a couple of weeks in between. But otherwise, like when probie school is here as an instructor, you're all in. You know, it's a it's a six-day-a-week job most of the time. And, you know, three classes, that means you're going to be uh, attached to, to the fire academy for the better part of a year and a half. Um, so you better be into the job if you're, if you're committing to that. And the, the folks we recruit for, for here – um, is the, is certainly the key. So anybody, if you want successful training, um, have people that want to be there. Um, forcing people to be instructors is not the way to have good instructors. Uh, that you know, so some departments they just assign people to training, even when they don't want to be there. And I try not to do that. You know, there's times where administratively I need to, you know, we may need a captain to come for a little while, but forcing somebody come to training when they don't want to be there. Um, is, is a bad practice. Yeah, I, I agree. And sometimes, like, I'm in a smaller department, so I don't have as many resources. I'm lucky that I've got a real good informal cadre, uh, but I can see where if I was to bring somebody in to teach something, if they didn't want to teach it, not only are they going to be miserable, they're going to make everybody else miserable. I will say this. When I was at your academy, and we were walking in uh, the building with – is it building 10 or 11 with the um, – uh, the cafeteria 11 11 so we were going through there and i kept seeing this one instructor you have and he just kind of stuck out to me he was just dressed sharp he was very detail oriented focused his name was ortiz i believe i hope i got his name right but i saw him there was a, a new recruit a probie that was evidently had done something wrong i have no idea what it is and he was he stood next to him and he was talking to him and i was like few feet away, I couldn't even hear what he was saying. But you could tell he was he was getting his point across to the guy. But at the same time, he wasn't screaming at him. He wasn't embarrassing or belittling the guy. But at the same time, you could tell by the probie's face, message was getting received. And then he sent the probie off and he came and talked to us because he saw us kind of looking. And he, he was just the nicest guy. And he's like, yeah, we're and he was explaining what he was doing, the methodology behind it, the results. It was just so, and I was just blown away. I was like, wow, this is a 100% put together cadre of instructors dedicated. I didn't know they weren't permanently assigned. You just, I just found out, you know, three classes, you know. How many people do that three classes in, in the state? Well, so after the, after, some, some do after the three, they continue to do classes, but a good percentage of them go back to the field and then they make up a, um, a cadre of people when, when someone takes vacation or someone's out sick that they can fill in as part of that team, right? So they still stay connected and then maybe they'll, they'll go back to the field for a few years and they miss it. And then they can come back for one class because they've already done it. 
you know, because to be to be the lead instructor takes three classes. Right. So you're not the lead instructor in most cases until the third class. Um, and then we also have drill instructors and our drill instructors are the ones that just keep make sure everybody's on the um, discipline wise is on the up and up. If they get out of hand, the drill instructors kind of get in there and they're sent. They train with the military um, to get some of the, the, the principles that they do. The majority of our drill instructors, if not all of them, uh, are former military. And, and you're 100 percent right. It's not their job's not to embarrass them. Right. So. We are the biggest cheerleaders for the um, for the probies to graduate here. I say I'm the biggest cheerleader. I, I go out, I watch them, I watch them um, do their training. I love watching the um, the functional skills testing, and when they do that, I love watching the the firefighter turn into a firefighter and seeing the, how they become a cohesive group. It's just it's just an incredible transformation that occurs. And you know, I tell my instructors. Um, that, you know, when I went through proby school, there were a couple of, a couple of people that really stood out to me. And, you know, one of them was, um, Lieutenant McJunkin and he was our drill instructor. And the other one was a firefighter, uh, Steve Humaninsky. And when I went to the field, Steve was a firefighter in engine 283 in my battalion. That guy was awesome. Like he was such a great instructor that I was so happy. I never told him this. Um, but I was so happy to be assigned to, to his, to his battalion because he cared about us, um, and cared about, you know, I was just a probie and, you know, his rules for the probies to follow, but he did that in a respectful manner where he understood that I was going to be an important part of the team. Right. And Lieutenant McJunkin, who was the drill instructor, he knew when to put the, to put the, put the head, hit the gas and when to lay off of the gas, um, you know, no one always needs to be the hammer. There's times where you should be laying off, depending what's going on. Not everybody brings their A game every day. And I think that's especially true for, for a probie. You never know what's going on at home or what's going on in their lives. And sometimes you got you to gotta cut them a little slack. And that's not saying we're lowering standards or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's just being a little bit, having a little bit of compassion for what's going on. And then knowing that they are, they are a part of the FDNY family. Um, and we want them to have a long, happy, healthy career alongside of us at some point once they graduate probie school. Um, the worst thing that could happen is um, the probie gets assigned to your battalion and they can't stand you because you didn't teach them anything or you were just unreasonable, right? And so I think that understanding right. is that you, the greatest compliment, and, and instructors tell me this, after I, after I give this little speech to them or whatever, I, I commonly have instructors come up to me and say, um, I see firefighters. I had a conversation with one of our guys yesterday and he said, um, a company was here for drill and three of the, three of the probies, three of the members on the rig. He said, I taught them and they all came over to him. They gave him a hug. He didn't remember their names, but they remembered him because he's taught, you know, he's taught 2000 firefighters. Um, but those firefighters remember him. Why? Because he had an impact. They, he impacted in a positive way, their career. There's nothing greater than when somebody comes up to you and says, I did this because of you or I, I, I did whatever it is, right, that you had an impact on my career. And if, if, for those of you listeners that, that have had that, they know what I'm talking about. They're all shaking their head. Yeah, because you, if you've had uh, somebody ever tell you that you've had a positive impact on their career, for someone who's into the job, there's nothing better than that. Absolutely. I tell you a story I like to tell is when I was in Saudi Arabia for the, in the Air Force as a firefighter, we worked with a chief. The, a chief for our department, and his name was, uh, I believe it was uh, Greg Buchanan. 
So he was a very young chief, great guy, just had it. He just had everything dialed in. So the last day we were there, he wrote all over this whiteboard is our last day to be with him. All these really wonderful sayings and ideas and thoughts to help us. Right. He didn't have to do that. But two of the things he wrote has always stuck with me. He made a huge impact on who I am today as a firefighter. And he wrote, don't swat at gnats when you can kill elephants. You know, don't worry about the little things. Focus on the big things. And he said, never fault anybody for training. And that that also stuck with me. So now I just graduated that class I was telling you about. And I did the exact same thing. I wrote all over. But I wrote also like uh, instructors that have impacted my life or articles that I think are really important. And obviously, I put in their report from Engine Company 82 and then uh, 20,000 Alarms, all the books that I read as a young firefighter that really pushed me over the, the edge to want to become a really good firefighter. I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. I figure I've got two more years. If I can't figure it out by then, I just might have to go be a cop. <laughs> just kidding. I don't ever be a cop. Um, I got to ask you, though, in that building, Building 11, how many times a day do you hear the word clear? Oh, well, yeah. Well, so clear. Yeah. Clear and make way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so there's times I'll be on I'll be on the phone call. Right. Or in a meeting and I'm walking by and I see the probies and it. I'm like, all right, I got to go a different way because whoever, whoever I'm on the phone, they're going to hear I'm getting yelled at, right? From people, make way. And I'm just like, yeah. keep going, be quiet, keep going. Um, or avoid <laughs> where they're going. Because um, I don't spend a lot of time in my office when I'm here. I like to walk around and see what's going on. Um, there's always new firefighters here. So I love engaging with uh, with people when, I'm, when I don't have meetings at headquarters and stuff. Um, when we're doing live fire revolutions, I, I like to be out there watching it and just – and interacting with people, right? So it's the connection that you have to the field um, every day at Education Day. Either myself or the um, or the acting chief of the fire academy, uh, Chuck Downey, we speak at Education Day, and we talk to the we talk to the field, and um, uh, and it's great. We give them an update on what's going on. Um, the leader's intent from headquarters, from the fire commissioner and chief department uh, and chief of operations, and we tell them what's going on at Proby School um, and at the fire academy, and then we answer any questions that they have. And um, I don't always have the answers, but I tell them, I will get you the answer before you leave here today. And if I can't do it by then, I'll email your company, but you'll get the information. Um, and, um, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that goes on um, in the fire service and in the department, the size of the FDNY, that they may not always know the reason behind why something's being done. And, you know, so if they ask the question or I'm able to provide that, that insight to them, then, it, then they, it's, it's better all around. Then they understand that, that there was a reason for whatever decision was made or whatever policy was implemented or, or something, or even a change in, in fire fighting procedures. I mean, I love going in there and talking about, you know, the, you know our new multiple dwelling uh, procedures or the edits to different documents or talking tactics on stretching a, a hand line. I could, you know, uh, I'll stay in there all day when we start talking about that stuff. Um, and then eventually I wind up talking about cancer in the fire service because that's a, that's a big issue. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm, I'm tired of seeing my, uh, my friends die. Um, and not just 9-11, you know, non-9-11 firefighters as well. So I always, in, I always talk about that as well because I think that's critically important for the, for the fire service to make sure that, that that's part of the conversation and, and part of your training. I couldn't agree more, especially when it comes to cancer, because I feel like, so we always worry about the heart attacks, you know, on the high, you know, we, we lose a lot of brothers and sisters uh, on the fire ground due to, you know, heart attacks, heart related issues, but long-term cancer is coming for us. 
And what I don't understand, and I, in my area, I, I, I see a little bit of this, <clears throat> where people decide not to wear air packs during overhaul. They keep their dirty gear in the cab. Now, I'm not a fan of clean cab by any, any means, but I'm a fan of having a clean cab. If, you know, you understand? And then, uh, you know, they don't wear their air packs during overhaul. They don't clean their gear. They don't take their showers. They don't do all the little things that are easy enough to do, you know, that they can lower that chances you know, quite a bit, actually. What what do you all do uh, as a fire department to kind of to, to more proactive towards well, cancer? Well, and that's a good question. So it's, like you said, there's a lot of little things that you need to do, right? So um, after after an, after a fire, wash your gear, right? So um, like I'm not, I wrote an article on the clean cab about, you know, redefining the clean cab, but it's not about taking the SCBAs out of the crew cab. It's about making sure that we don't put dirty equipment in there. Um, or minimize the amount of dirty equipment that, that's in there, right? So common sense, best practices. Um, you know, when do we wash the bottom of our boots, uh, right? There's three times when we step in dog shit, have Speedy Dry on it, or have diesel fuel on it. <laughs> Otherwise, we never wash the bottom of our boots, right? So there's contamination there. How about the inside liner of your helmet? Most people have never washed the inside liner of your helmet. But if you go and wash the inside liner of your helmet, the first time I did, the water looked like iced tea. Um, you know, so... You're wearing a hood around your neck, and it's and it's dirty, right? Um, and it's sitting right on your thyroid. It sits here and here. So thyroid cancer is one of the number one cancers right now. It's the number one cancer in non nine eleven responders in the FDNY. Um, you know, just little things like that. Washing your hands before you go to the bathroom, right? Because testicular cancer double the rate of the general population. Um, just there's so many little things. Not packing. You know, we. After the fire, we start packing the hose and we take our gloves off and we're touching, we're touching contaminated hose with our bare hands. Why are we letting our guard down then? And yeah, you know, leaving the SCBA on longer. Sure. If you could wear your mask a little, 30 every fire you go to just wear it 30 seconds longer than the last time. Just think, I'm going to just leave it on a little bit longer. Yeah. I still have air. Why am I not keeping it on? It just doesn't make sense. Um, but there's a lot of those little right. tactical nuances. You're at a car fire, right? And, um, you're there, uh, engine in a truck, and the engine is getting water, and the truck's in there. The fire is uh, roaring out from the car, and they're in there trying to force the trunk. Let the engine take a tactical pause. Put the let the engine knock it down. You know, uh, we joke around. When's the last time you saw a bought up company bought up a car? It's a garbage fire. At that point, if there's, <laughs> if there's no exposure problem and there's no victims, it's a garbage fire. It's going to be salvage. And we're in there. Sometimes you see videos on YouTube or whatever, and whether they're not wearing the SCBA or they're in there trying to force entry um, for, for no reason. Because even if, you have your, even if you have your air pack on, right, you're getting all that stuff all over your gear unnecessarily, right? So now are you sending your gear out after that? Probably not. Not too many people are sending it out after a car fire. But you can minimize the exposure, just like a dumpster fire. Use the reach of the stream to best protect ourselves. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense when we see some of the tactics that we're – that we're employing, um, and, and we could we could do better, Absolutely. right? It's just, but it's personal accountability for yourself, because the little steps that you could take now um, make big make a big difference. And there's no silver bullet, there's no one thing that you can do, but there's a lot of little things. And the one thing for certain is that your future self will thank you. That's for sure. Absolutely, I always say tell my guys that you know you'll never be on your deathbed, weighing 75 pounds with your family, watching you slowly die, being sad and miserable, and you're never going to say, well, at least I didn't have to wear my air pack. 
at least I didn't have to, you know, clean my gear. You'd give anything in the world to go back in time and, and do those things to, to and not, not to mention, you know, getting your physicals, annual physicals, and, and knowing, having a good relationship with your doctor where they know what to look for as a firefighter. You know, all these things are stuff that we can do proactively to lessen that chances. And God forbid we do get it, hopefully help us fight it better. Couldn't have said it better myself. You're 100% right. I mean, these are just, just such little things that we can that we can do, no doubt. Absolutely. So let me end on this, okay? Uh, tell me a little bit about the Firehouse Expo coming up and Fire Service Cornerstones of Success training and team. Well, so I'll be the keynote speaker at uh, Firehouse Expo in Columbus at the in the end of September. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's it's really all about um, training and teamwork. And you can even throw in their mentorship uh, and how how that all matters, especially on game day. Um, you certainly don't ever want to be unprepared, right? When when someone when someone is at the window um, or you're you're at the fire and you're able to save a life and your training lets you down, it's don't make it be because of a lack of training, right, or lack of preparation. Um, we could go, you could go years without having to um, perform in the Super Bowl, or, or um, you know, there's a reason Derek Jeter takes ground balls every single, you know, would take ground balls every single day to maintain his readiness. And you know, could you, you know, if you're not ready on game day, and you know, we we saw it in the fire in the Bronx um, where we lost 17 people. I mean, I look at, I I, I was at that fire. I wound up being the incident commander at that fire. Um, you know, roughly 22 minutes in and the Herculean effort that, that our people were putting forth because they were ready, because they trained. And it was decades worth of preparation. Um, the, the members in the Bronx and, and there were members from all over the city, both in fire and EMS. They didn't just wake up that Sunday morning and suddenly be good at what they do. Um, uh, one of the commanders up, up in the Bronx, he called me a couple of days later and um uh, he was thanking me and, and, and praising the operation uh, and, and praising me. And I'm like, I said, man, I said, so this credit belongs to you more than it belongs to me. I said, you have set the standard up up there and with your units for so long that they perform at a high level. So, um, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? A hundred years ago. When's the second best time today? Um, and if, if you're not training and preparing for the next response, um, you know, when the response comes in, preparation, the time to, the time to prepare is over. Um, and you either got it or you don't have it. And our members, our, um, our winning mindset, our desire to win um, on every run of every day in the FDNY is simply part of our culture. And when you talk about teamwork, we spoke about that quite a bit today. Um, the teamwork even extends after after the fire. I had someone ask me the other day about you know the line after after a fire. Every every member jumps on the hose line, and and when we're packing it, every, everybody's there doing that. And um, at the Bronx fire, I took a picture of it. I take a lot of pictures for training purposes. I'm always taking pictures, but I took a picture of that because our members looked they their look was of defeat because we played a win. But um, even though we lost all those people there, and that was the headline, the headline should have been that the, it should have been that the FDNY rescued over a hundred people from that building, right? But when you play to when when 
you have that winning mindset and you play to win and you lose 17 people. It hurts when we lose one. Now we lost 17. And like to, for, for my firefighters to know that, you know, sometimes regardless of the, the dedication, the work, the effort, um, the Herculean, the heroic effort that was going on there, both inside and outside the building. I knew what was going on inside the building, standing up from the outside, but I was witnessing uh, the heroics in front of me, both from fire and EMS units doing CPR on, on dozens of people, um, knowing what was going on inside, knowing that what they were doing inside. Um, but it's because their training didn't let them down because they were able to lean on their training, because they were able to operate in the gray areas of our procedures, right? Our procedures don't fully define everything. And that's a good thing. We earn our money in the gray area. And that's why understanding the why, that's why the understanding of what we do matters and matters greatly on game day, because that time to prepare is finished and it's test time. And we excelled at that test on that day, as we often do, even though we didn't achieve the results that we optimally would have wanted, which is no fire deaths, right? No firefighter ever wants to go to a fire that people die, right? That's just, that's just why that's just not what we're about. So when we lose anybody, uh, especially a child, it hurts and our people were hurting. And when I took that picture, they were hurting and I'm looking at them. We're still doing what we do. We're a team, but normally after that, our guys are talking, our folks are talking to each other because it's, the guy from, you know, the firefighter from 48 engine would be talking to the guy from 90 engine and they'd be talking about their families or whatever. Maybe they went to proby school or they remember each other from a detail or they're in the same battalion and nobody was talking. Nobody was talking. They all had that blank stare on their face. But it wasn't because of their effort. It wasn't because of their dedication to the profession, to the FDNY and the civilians that they're sworn to protect. But they were ready. Could you imagine if they weren't ready? Yeah. That, that's one of the things that I always struggle trying to get my point across is that you don't you don't prepare the day of the fire. You, all the preparation is done before. And so many people, since they've gone to fires, haven't got any firefighters hurt or lost a large amount of people like that. They base their failures or their success on lack of failure. And it's, it's one of those things that the job will humble you someday. If you don't realize that just because you've had success up to this point doesn't mean that you've done everything right, right? So to your point, preparation is everything. Training is everything. You know, waiting for that day to where hopefully, you know, they they have they have that teamwork, they have that training uh, to do the job to, to the level. Which is of, why we got to advocate for funding, right? So the uniform always has to advocate for funding and for training because you know um, most firefighters go an entire career and never make a grab, right? Yet most, most firefighters, if you're dedicated to the craft, you're ready. And that's why we're on game day we perform because we're ready. Even though you've been, you know, sometimes a rescue is 15 years in the making. A firefighter with 15 years on a job goes to medal day because he rescued a, a young man in a fire, right? It wasn't because he didn't know how to do it for 15 years. He just had the opportunity and was ready to perform when the situation presented itself. And, you know, so... Um, Sometimes the moments that matter the most are the ones that never happen. Um, so when we when we think that um, sometimes we can't quantify it because nothing, you know, we, we saved a life or we extinguished the fire fast enough where um, it didn't extend or, or the building didn't collapse or whatever happened. 
but um, it begins. It's why training is the cornerstone. As training goes, so goes your department. And when we stop training, um, there's one thing for certain that you can cut training for a year or two years and maybe save a couple of dollars, but you will pay it back with dividends at some point. And that happens in civilian deaths and civilian injuries and sometimes firefighter injuries and firefighter deaths. It's cheaper to train and prevent as many of those as we can. But it has to start with the uniform advocating for the importance of that and educating anybody that they need to and being the cheerleader to make sure that training never stops. Every day is a training day. Stay learnable your entire career. Stay humble your entire career and know that the second you think you know it all, you will be humbled. <laughs> and it doesn't matter where you work. That's I'm just kind of without words right now. You're absolutely right, sir. Absolutely right. And and wow. Yep. Yes, sir. I don't. It's amazing. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being on here. I appreciate you. I know you're busy, and I really I appreciate, appreciate the your opportunity. Time. Thank you so and much. Um, Jake, I always have time for guys that are as passionate about the job. Um, as I am. So I appreciate appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate that you came here um, uh, to teach that class with, with our members. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that you get to come here and teach again with some future classes that we may have in the works. <laughs> Crossing my fingers, sir. Crossing my fingers. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for your time. Today's podcast is sponsored by Fire Facilities Incorporated, expert engineers, designers, and manufacturers of steel training towers, burn rooms, and mobile units that are all made in the USA. Welcome back to Three Point Firefighter. Today, my guest is Frank Lieb. Now, Frank Lieb is a Deputy Assistant Chief in the FDNY, and he's the Acting Chief of Training. Frank has been a member of the FDNY since 1992, and he's a member of East Farmingdale Fire Department in Long Island, New York, and he's been doing that since 1983. He holds a bachelor's degree in Fire Service Administration from SUNY, a master's degree in Security Studies from the Naval Postgraduate School. Chief Lieb, thank you so much for being on my show. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So I want to tell you a little bit how, I mean, you remember this, but I'm going to let the listeners know what happened. So I'm extremely fortunate to work with some great instructors in the ISFSI. We get tasked with coming to uh, the FDNY, The Rock, to deliver two classes back-to-back basement fire. So we get up there. It's really exciting. And that's where I meet you. And on our first day of actually doing the class, you were there. And you said, hey, listen, I'm really busy but uh, I'm going to be ducking in and out of the classes. So for us, what we've seen in the past is when you see a chief or somebody coming in and they say duck in and out of classes or kind of come in there to watch, and then they go back and have to do work. And I understand that they're busy. I got no problem with that. But the next thing we know, me and uh, uh, my brother Brad French, we see you bunker, bunkered out. You've got your black tie on, your white shirt underneath, and your collar brass, and you're going to work. I mean, you were doing everything, and you caught – my like the first half or a lot of the, a lot the first day. And then the second day we delivered the exact same class and you came the second day and did all the things uh, you didn't get to do on the first day. So you were working as a uh, training chief and jumping in and out, doing all the stuff. It it really, really impressed us. Uh, That's amazing leadership, brother. That's amazing leadership. 
Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a firefighter, right? So I, I love getting in there and, and doing it. And um, uh, I was excited to get out, to have the opportunity to do there and, and kind of, I didn't want to be disrespectful to the instructors. So that's why I let you know that, hey, I got to duck in and out. I have meetings. I did the best I could clearing my schedule. But my goal was over the two days to sit in one entire day. Um, and I did that. I sat in on everything over the two days. And a couple of the things that I enjoyed on day one, I sat in the second time uh, on day two. And, you know, I got just about 30 years in the FDNY. And I'm, I'm into learning and, and something uh you know, it's a good day when you learn something new. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're a probie or you got or you got 30 or 40 years on the job. It doesn't matter. And uh, I really believe learning from you can learn something from everybody as well. Right. So we had instructors, um, quality instructors from all over the country. So, you know, teach me, show, show me something new. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I know this. I personally was a little nervous coming up there. Uh and when I got up there, and there was there's a bunch of us in there, and I'm sure I wasn't the only instructor a little bit nervous. I mean, you're you're going to FDMY, you're going to the, the largest fire department in the world. And and I mean this wholeheartedly, every single firefighter I met was not only just polite, but they were super nice, super knowledgeable, and just super friendly. And it just it amazed me because I don't know what I was expecting. Uh I guess, you know, I don't know, but every single person was like, Hey, how are you? What can I do for you? It seems to be inbred in the culture up there. Yeah, it is. You know, so the brother and sisterhood is strong, right? And um, perhaps nowhere is it stronger than in the FDNY. It is. Uh, it's in the very fabric of of what we do, the very fabric of our culture. It's in our DNA, who we draw to to the job. And you know, I think coming and teaching at the FDNY Fire Academy is intimidating. It's everybody knows. I can show a picture of the FDNY Fire Academy, and it's iconic. Most people would recognize that from another fire academy uh, in, in seconds. So, um, yeah, to have the opportunity to come here. The FDNY firefighter smells bullshit a mile away, so you better come with some experience um, and and know what you're talking about. And if you do, you know, um, you're going to have a, you, you know, you'll usually have a great experience uh, teaching here. And I think, you know, that group of instructors – um, did a really nice job. Actually, I know they did. Oh. They, I, since I sat in on so much of it, I could say firsthand um, that they did a, a really nice job. And I got a lot of great feedback, which is pretty typical. Um, we don't bring just any program to the FDNY Fire Academy. Um, you know, one of my jobs is to make sure that I'm bringing high quality training here, that I'm not wasting anybody's time, uh, both the instructors and, and my firefighters. Um, but I like to bring in... Um, outsiders to the FDNY um, because cross-pollinization, different fostering of different ideas and methodologies, I think is uh, is good. It opens your, opens your mind, widens your aperture on what's out there and what we can learn because, hey, we're willing to learn and adapt from anybody. You got, you got a better way of doing something? Let us know. And, you know, and I'm sure you know this as well, when, even when you're an instructor, it's, it's, it's teaching, but you end up learning just as much as you're teaching. And obviously, when we were there at The Rock, we learned an awful lot about how you all do things. And we watched your training uh, probies while we were there. And I'll tell you what, we do a little sidebar. So my new recruits hated that I went to The Rock. So I had a brand new group of recruits. They were about halfway through their academy when I went up there. And I saw your all's motivation alley. So I took that back to my guys. I had two guys and a girl in my academy. And 
I, I mimicked it as best I could with, with what I had. And boy, did they hate me. They said, don't ever go back to New York City. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about Motivation Alley for those that don't know? Yeah. So, you know, um, probie school in the FDNY is hard. Um, and it's hard because the, the job of a firefighter is hard. Um, and one of the early things that they do is um, uh, we call it Motivation Alley. And they got to stretch. They do an inch and three quarter on one day and they do a two and a half inch line on the other day. And they got to stretch the line without shutting it down. They got to, you know, um, go the full length of a, of a hose or then even a little bit more than that. Um, with the encouragement of of their other firefighters, right, that are in their platoon. Um, but it's not only the individual, right? So the individual is on the nozzle, but it's a team concept. And it's to instill that early on as they're rooting for them. Um and that's an, that's an important part of that. You start to see them transition from uh, from a probie civilian, right, to uh, to a, a, a firefighter that understands the value of teamwork. I mean, in the, in the FDNY, all of our procedures are based on the team concept. Um, there's individuals that do action, you know, specific actions or jobs and tasks, but it's all based on the team concept. If someone doesn't do their job, the whole team fails. And likewise, when when somebody, when everybody does their job um, and somebody makes a grab, we go to medal day, the individual gets the accolades, but everybody's happy for them because it's a company, it's, you know, the company pride, right? And that we all played a part of that. Even as the incident commander, this medal day, there's a couple of people getting medals for incidents that I was at. And I'm proud of it because I was part of that. I was part of that incident, um, even though I wasn't in there making the grab, right? But we were, right? So he, st- he got his training somewhere. He, he got his start. He well, everything, the whole aspect, right? It's really the it's the t- totality of the job. Um, the majority of, of rescues really are the whole team deserves the credit. There's occasionally where it's a an individual act that's just above and beyond, especially when no one else is on scene or something like that. But it's a team. It's the greatest team sport there is. I could agree more. And it shows that the teamwork, the brother and sisterhood is is alive and well in FDNY. Now, what got you started in the fire service? What made you say, you know what? I don't want to be a dentist. I want to be a firefighter. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I was seven years old um, when my older brother, Bobby, joined the volunteer fire department. And he brought me up there all the time. So my earliest memories are of going and, and seeing the firefighters in East Farmingdale and them really being like a second family to me. Um, and then there were several firefighters that were in East Farmingdale that were New York city firefighters. And they were just like, they were so into it. They were just, uh, their level of, of training and dedication. And I'm like, wow, like I wasn't sure that I can do that. Right. Um, just thinking like these guys, some of them were just incredible firefighters. And, um, you know, and they encouraged me and my brother encouraged me to become, you know, to take the, the test. And uh, I took the test basically when I was uh, uh, I was like 17 and a half was like the minimum age you could be. And I had just made the cutoff. So I was pretty young when I took the test. I got I was I was one of the youngest at the time to get on. Uh, I got on when I was 23 years old. Um, and it's just always something I've always wanted to do. When I was old enough to join the junior fire department in East Farmingdale, I joined there. That was when I was 14 years old. And then at, at 17 years old, I became, uh, you know, a regular, uh, you know, a, a firefighter. And there were, there were five of us from my graduating high school class. In our
Um, and wow. yeah, so and the majority of us are still active in the volunteer fire department that were on that original picture of of five. So that's you know that's that's pretty cool. All these uh, all these years later, that that that's where we're at. Yeah. So you never had a chance. There was never, you know, I'm going to grow up and be a lawyer, doctor, fighter pilot. You're like, no, firefighter. No. So I, I wanted to, you know, I remember as a young kid, the, the um, construction crew was digging up my road and my mom would tell me I wanted to be a digger man. Um, other than that, so um, <laughs> it was either that or a firefighter. I never wanted to be anything else. I mean, I had other jobs while I was waiting to be a firefighter, but it was, it was always about, it was always about being a firefighter. It was, uh, and uh, to this day, I tell people I couldn't dream of doing anything else. I absolutely love what I do. People say, what do you do for a hobby? I'm like, you know, um, I, I love hanging out with my children. I love hanging out with my, my granddaughter now. I love hanging out with my wife. Um, I, enjoy, I enjoy fishing and golf and things like that. I love traveling. But, man, I just love being a firefighter and uh, teaching or reading and doing other things that are involved with my, with my profession. So I say being a firefighter is in – is, is my job. And, and to some degrees, it's my hobby because I just enjoy it, whether it's just in my off time, just writing an article about something that you get an idea. And the next thing you know, um, you know, I could I could be on a plane going to teach somewhere and I'll write an entire article on my phone on the airplane. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so what's some, what were some of your assignments when you first when you get when you left the rock as a probie? Where did you go that brought you all the way up to where you're at now? Back at the Rock. Yeah, so I um, again, I would have never thought that I'd wind up uh, at the Rock later in my career. That's for sure. But um, I graduated Proby School uh, the end of '92, just in time to go and be there for New Year's. Um, I get to Engine Three Twenty Three in Brooklyn, and uh, I worked there for a bunch of years. Um, in February of, of '93, I catch a, a really good job, and uh, I have a really good officer, this Captain Gene McGowan. Uh, I catch a really good fire with him. Um, we, 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 we burn, we burn our ears. A bunch of people wound up going to the burn center. I didn't need to go to the burn center. I went back to the firehouse and, uh, you know, with my burnt ears along with the captain and, uh, recovered. So I learned a lot of lessons from him, a lot of good mentors in my career. He certainly wanted them. Um, and then, uh, they formed the squad companies in 1998 and I went to, um, went to the, had the tryouts for it. And at the tryouts were all the captains of the companies. And um, Jerry Tracy was there. He's, he was, the, was going to be the captain of Squad 18. And Tom Richardson was there. He was going to be the captain of Squad 270. And he, when he was a captain covering in the 15th Division, where I was a firefighter in 323, he did a vacation there. So, you know, we were drilling and he's really into the job. And he saw I was really into the job. So when he saw me at the tryouts, he just asked me, you know, what my career aspirations are, stuff like that. A couple of days later, Richard, you know, Tom Richardson gives me a call and he's like, uh, bro, I'm, uh, I'm taking you to squad 270. So, and then, so uh, as a bonehead, what do I say? I said, where is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I had no idea where that, where that company was located, but um, this was an opportunity to be in, in special operations. Um, I would have went to any of the companies, any of the squads that would have, um, that wanted my, uh, wanted to take a chance with me. I only had five and a half years on the fire department when I went. Um, but I had the one thing, um, I had the two things that you really can't teach, right? I had the heart and I was extremely into the job. And um, I didn't know how to use all the tools and stuff because I, because I was into it because of my, my time in East Farmingdale, um, especially the, you know, the truck tools considering I was in an engine. 
Um, so he took a chance on me. I did just about five years in 270. Um, I got promoted out of there. Uh, I was in 270 uh, for 9-11. I was off that day. Uh, my company um, was, uh, was fortunate that we didn't, we didn't lose anybody, but um, special operations lost a, an unbelievable amount of people. Um, and many of those people I knew from when they formed the squads in 1998. So, uh, like, like everybody on the job, we lost uh, a lot of our good friends. Um, and it really changed how, how the FDNY operates, how SOC was. Even after that, some of our members went to, uh, they transferred to other companies within the command, you know, rescue one, rescue two, some other companies where, where our members went to help fill in because those companies were, were decimated. Um, I take the lieutenant's test and uh, I get promoted to lieutenant and then I work in uh, engine 324 in, in Queens and with a satellite unit. So being promoted out of, um, out of a squad, that was perfect because they went on all second alarms. Um, and so I was in Queens. So I was familiar with the chiefs in the 13th division. Now I'm in quarters with the 14th division. So all the chiefs that are going to be putting me to work, I would, the satellite goes when there's a water supply issue, right? If you, that's when they really need you. Um, but if there's no water supply issue, I would tell the chief, hey, chief, you have plenty of water. Uh, we're available if you need us to do something else. So my guys would always joke around um, and, um, uh, you know, that we were like squad light, they would call us. Like, because, because we had this. Uh, I had, a, um, uh, I had a, a mini Halligan that one of the members went, uh, made me when I got promoted out of squad. Um, so it was like half the size of a regular Halligan. And the guys there, they nicknamed it the Liebigan. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we were single engine and my thing is I know how to force a door. So, um, you know, we get in before the truck. I'm not waiting for someone else to force the door. I'm going to force the door, you know, tell my guys to stretch the line, tell my firefighter to stretch the line and I'm going to start forcing the door. Um, you know, so multiple times at fires, I would have, you know, I'd force the door, control the door, maybe get in there, get a quick little search. Um, you know, while my guys and girls are stretching stretching the hose line up to, you know, wherever third or fourth floor, wherever the fire is. Um, so I loved it there. I had a, had a great time there. Um, I was working there when actually when I, um, I came in one night and um, they were looking, for, we were going to be deployed to New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and they come in and they're like, hey, you want to go uh, to New Orleans? I'm like, sure. When? And they're like, uh, midnight tonight. So they got someone to relieve me. I went home. I packed up. And was back at Kennedy Airport by uh, by midnight for the first deployment to uh, to New Orleans for Katrina. Talking about Katrina could be a whole show on its own, um, but just an amazing <laughs> an amazing experience down there working with the New Orleans firefighters. Just an incredibly dedicated group of people. Uh, we worked with them. We worked with some of the members of the Chicago Fire Department down there. Uh, tremendous experience in my career. Um, I studied. I got promoted to captain. Uh, I went on to work in 76 engine in Manhattan uh, on the Upper West Side. So we got a, a little bit, a little taste of, of all the different action, not far from Columbia University. We'd get relocated into Midtown. So I got some Midtown time. We'd go up into uh, Harlem a little bit. So we'd catch some work up there. So it was a pretty, pretty diverse area. Uh, studied again, got promoted to battalion chief, went out to Queens in the 4-6 battalion uh, in Elmhurst, Elmhurst Eagles. Um, that firehouse goes out the door about 14,000 times a year, amount of runs between the truck engine and chief. And it was great. I worked there for uh, like eight years and just a, an incredibly diverse area, a ton of work and just loved it there. Got promoted, went to deputy chief, worked in lower Manhattan in the first division. 
um, incredibly knowledgeable firefighters uh, in the first division on their area. Just I was blown away at the knowledge level of of the firefighters uh, there. There's so many different variations of buildings there. Nothing, no run is is even close to routine there, um, and anywhere in Manhattan. And um, I did 18 months there when they asked me uh, to be. Uh, you know, to be the chief of the fire academy. And when you're asked to be the chief of the fire academy, you, you don't say no, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> in the FDNY. So I was blessed to do that position for um, a little over two years. Um, then my boss, who was the chief of training, re- retired. And then they asked me to be the acting chief of training. Um, uh, you, you know, at some point, maybe they'll make me the chief of training. We'll see how they, how that goes. But, and that's where I am. That's where I am now. And, um, I love the position. I think I could uh, impact uh, impact the FDNY and really just improve upon the uh, really what was established by so many great chiefs and, and leaders here before me. And I'm able to start at such a high point because their bar was already so high. So I'm able to implement a lot of innovative things uh, and ideas that some of the more ideas I got from previous people that I worked under here. Because I've I've been in, I've been involved with training. I'm like every firefighter. I didn't want to come offline, but if you wanted me to help train, I was all into it. Because as you mentioned earlier, um, I learn just as much as as um, as you teach. In fact, so many of the classes, I was more of a facilitator, right? And just pulling information out of out of it because I, the the experience level is so high. Um, and eventually you just learn so many different things from different firefighters and fire officers from different parts of the city. And they tell you, well, this is how I do it. And I'm like, wow, that, that's freaking great. And the next thing you know, I'm sharing that information with the next group that's from another area of the city. And that cross-pollinization, even when the, within the FDNY, um, was really important. And to be able to get that by bringing in, in other classes and stuff like that, that cross-pollinization around the country, I think is, is uh, very beneficial for, for everybody. I, I agree. I could agree more. I, I tell you, that, so we kind of talked a little bit before we start recording. So when I got in the fire service a long time ago, I was totally hooked on all things FDNY. I don't know what sent me down that path, but I was hooked. So uh, your report from Engine Company 82, uh, let's say 20,000 alarms, anything by Vince Dunn, blah, blah, blah. So as a young firefighter, anything and everything I could get out of there, I was pretty excited about. <clears throat> and uh, fast forward to where we were coming up there, uh, and me and, and all of the instructors were so excited about coming up there. So the f- night we flew in, um, we my friend called me. He'd already landed. He goes, hey, man, we're going to go to uh, Rescue One and see Cirillo. Do you want to go? First off, he said, do you want to go? That's about the dumbest question I think I've ever been asked. I'm like, yes. <laughs> let me Literally, let me kick open my hotel door, throw my stuff. I'm going. So now keep in mind, I've never been ever, anywhere near New York City. So I'd already been flying for quite a few hours. I'm a little sluggish, but boy, I was happy. We go in there. I get to see Cap Cirillo and his crew, and it's like 10 o'clock at night. They made us coffee. They treated us like like we were, we, we worked there. I mean, they just with respect, and they were nice, and I, it was just an amazing thing. And so I'm looking at my buddy Gilbert. I'm like, I'm like, dude, we're drinking coffee in Rescue One's house. This is like the coolest thing ever. Fast forward to tom- the next morning. We roll on in the morning to the rock to set things up, and it just blew us away. The complete size of what you have to command, that building after building, prop after prop. And it just seemed like it, as Captain Cirillo walked us around and said, hey, here's this, here's this, here's this. It never ended. It didn't stop. It was like, 
I, I thought for sure I had no idea how big an area it is. You have the uh, one of the things I thought was neat was the subway uh, simulator. It's amazing. How do you handle all of the different buildings, the the tons of personnel? I mean, all the equipment. It's got to be a logistical nightmare for you. Well, so it's it all it all starts and ends with making sure that you have quality people working for you, and we have exceptional people working at the fire academy. Um, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, I say, I don't need to micromanage my team. Um, I just tell them this is what I expect. They know the leader's intent. They know what we're trying to do. And and they go after it. And, you know, um, <coughs> I'm never disappointed. My people never disappoint me. They are. Um, I tell them what I want, and they always exceed my expectations. And, you know, uh, I don't. By not micromanaging, hey, this is what we want to do. We want to train firefighters on whatever, whatever it is that we want to do. Come up with a game plan and let me know what you want to do. They always exceed whatever expectation I had in my mind. That's what firefighters do. That's in our DNA as well, right? So it doesn't matter what it is. Um, when it comes to that, you know, I'll occasionally give, you know, hey, all right, maybe can we just change this to do that or whatever. Um, but the, tri- the the caliber of people we have here is the key to the whole operation. There's no doubt about that. And I have so many different people that work for the Bureau of Training. Um, so many, in fact, that I don't know them all. And people are like, what do you mean you don't know them all? I say, well, you know, I have the subway extrication unit. They have, you know, a couple of guys assigned to their unit. Then they bring in people for the day or the week. There's a lot of those instructors that come in like that. But that's part of the beauty of it is that, you know, last night that firefighter worked in the field. And then they're bringing back that experience. They may have had an incident, whatever, a fire, whatever it is. And they're passing that information on along the very next day sometimes. And the credibility of that um, is is really good. And so we have our, our core group of, of key instructors that are, that are assigned to the fire academy. And then they use others that come and go sometimes for a day, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a couple of months. And then they go back to the field and then they come back. And um, but. They're, they're usually seasoned firefighters that have some time on a job that want to give back and help out, right? Because they that that whole mentoring on next generation of firefighters and, and fire officers is another thing that's just ingrained into our culture from day one, right? And it's why we have the caliber of proby class instructors that we have. Because coming to teach proby class, you have to commit for three classes. That's, you know... There's usually a couple of weeks in between, but otherwise, like when Proby School is here as an instructor, you're all in. You know, it's a it's a six day a week job most of the time, and you know, three classes. That means you're going to be uh, attached to to the fire academy for the better part of a year and a half. Um, so you better be into the job if you're if you're committing to that. And the the folks we recruit for for here um, is the is certainly the key. So anybody, if you want successful training. Um, have people that want to be there. Um, forcing people to be instructors is not the way to have good instructors uh, that, you know, so some departments, they just assign people to training even when they don't want to be there. And I try not to do that. You know, there's times where administratively I need to, you know, we may need a captain to come for a little while, but forcing somebody come to training when they don't want to be there um, is, is a bad practice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And sometimes, like, I'm in a smaller department, so I don't have as many resources. I'm lucky that I've got a real good informal cadre 
but I can see where if I was to bring somebody in to teach something, if they didn't want to teach it, not only are they going to be miserable, they're going to make everybody else miserable. I will say this. When I was at your academy, and we were walking in uh, the building with – is it building 10 or 11 with the um, uh, the cafeteria? 11. 11. So we were going through there, and I kept seeing this one instructor you have, and he just kind of stuck out to me. He was just dress sharp. He was very detail-oriented and focused. His name was Ortiz, I believe. I hope I got his name right. But I saw him. There was a, a new recruit, a probie, that was evidently had done something wrong. I have no idea what it is. And he was, he stood next to him and he was talking to him. And I was like a few feet away. I couldn't even hear what he was saying, but you could tell he was, he was getting his point across to the guy, but at the same time, he wasn't screaming at him. He wasn't embarrassing or belittling the guy. But at the same time, you could tell by the probie's face, message was getting received. And then he sent the probie off and he came and talked to us because he saw us kind of looking and he, he was just the nicest guy. And he's like, yeah, we're and he was explaining what he was doing, the methodology behind it, the results. It was just so, and I was just blown away. I was like, wow, this is a hundred percent put together cadre of instructors dedicated. I didn't know they weren't permanently assigned. You just, I just found out, you know, three classes, you know, how many people do that three classes in, in the state? Well, so after the, after some, some do after the three, they continue to do classes, but a good percentage of them, go back to the field and then they make up a, um, a cadre of people when, when someone takes vacation or someone's out sick that they can fill in as part of that team. Right. So they still stay connected okay. and then maybe they'll, they'll go back to the field for a few years and they miss it. And then they can come back for one class because they've already done it, you know, because to be, mm -hmm. to be the lead instructor takes three classes, right? So you're not the lead instructor in most cases until the third class. Um, and then we also have drill instructors and our drill instructors are the ones that just keep, make sure everybody's on the, um, discipline wise is on the up and up. If they get out of hand, the drill instructors kind of get in there and they're, they're sent, they train with the military, um, to get some of the, the, the principles that they do. The majority of our drill instructors, if not all of them, uh, are former military and, and you're hundred percent right. It's not, their job's not to embarrass them. Right. So we are the biggest cheerleaders for the um, for the probies to graduate here. I say I'm the biggest cheerleader. I, I go out and I watch them. I watch them um, do their training. I love watching the um, the functional skills testing and when they do that. I love watching the, the firefighter turn into a firefighter and seeing that how they become a cohesive group. It's just it's just an incredible transformation that occurs. And you know, I tell my instructors. Um, that, you know, when I went through probie school, there were a couple of, a couple of people that really stood out to me. And, you know, one of them was, um, Lieutenant McJunkin and he was our drill instructor. And the other one was a firefighter, uh, Steve Humaninsky. And when I went to the field, Steve was a firefighter in engine 283 in my battalion. That guy was awesome. Like he was such a great instructor that I was so happy. I never told him this. Um, but I was so happy to be assigned to, to his, to his battalion because he cared about us, um, and cared about, you know, I was just a probie and, you know, his rules for the probies to follow, but he did that in a respectful manner where he understood that I was going to be an important part of the team. Right. And Lieutenant McJunkin, who was the drill instructor, he knew when to put the, to put the, put the head, hit the gas and when to lay off of the gas, um, you know, no one always needs to be the hammer. There's times where you should be laying off, depending what's going on. Not everybody brings their A game 
every day. And I think that's especially true for, for a probie. You never know what's going on at home or what's going on in their lives. And sometimes you got you to gotta cut them a little slack. And that's not saying we're lowering standards or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's just being a little bit, having a little bit of compassion for what's going on. And then knowing that they are, they are a part of the FDNY family. Um, and we want them to have a long, happy, healthy career alongside of us at some point once they graduate probie school. Um, the worst thing that could happen is um, the probie gets assigned to your battalion and they can't stand you because you didn't teach them anything or you were just unreasonable, right? And so I think that understanding right. is that you, the greatest compliment, and, and instructors tell me this, after I, after I give this little speech to them or whatever, I, I commonly have instructors come up to me and say, um, I see firefighters. I had a conversation with one of our guys yesterday, and he said um, a company was here for drill, and three of, the, three of the probies, three of the members on the rig, he said, I taught them. And they all came over to him. They gave him a hug. He didn't remember their names, but they remembered him because he's taught, you know, he's taught 2,000 firefighters. Um, but those firefighters remember him. Why? Because he had an impact. They, he impacted in a positive way their career. There's nothing greater than when somebody comes up to you and says, I did this because of you or I, I, I did whatever it is, right, that you had an impact on my career. And if, if, for those of you listeners that, that have had that, they know what I'm talking about. They're all shaking their head. Yeah. Because you, if you've had somebody ever tell you that you've had a positive impact on their career, for someone who's into the job, there's nothing better than that. Absolutely. I tell you a story I like to tell is when I was in Saudi Arabia for the, in the Air Force as a firefighter, we worked with a chief, a chief for our department, and his name was, uh, I believe it was uh, Greg Buchanan. So he was a very young chief, great guy, just had it, he just had everything dialed in. So the last day we were there, he wrote all over this whiteboard, is our last day to be with him, all these really wonderful sayings and ideas and thoughts to help us, right? He didn't have to do that. But two of the things he wrote has always stuck with me. He made a huge impact on who I am today as a firefighter. And he wrote, don't swat at gnats when you can kill elephants. You know, don't worry about the little things. Focus on the big things. And he said, never fault anybody for training. And that that also stuck with me. So now I just graduated that class I was telling you about. And I did the exact same thing. I wrote all over. But I wrote also like uh, instructors that have impacted my life or articles that I think are really important. And obviously, I put in their report from Engine Company 82 and then uh, 20,000 Alarms, all the books that I read as a young firefighter that really pushed me over the, the edge to want to become a really good firefighter. I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. I figure I've got two more years. If I can't figure it out by then, I just might have to go be a cop. <laughs> just kidding. I don't ever be a cop. Um, I got to ask you, though, in that building, Building 11, how many times a day do you hear the word clear? Oh, well, yeah. Well, so clear. Yeah, clear and make way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so there's times I'll be on I'll be on a phone call, right, or in a meeting, and I'm walking by, and I see the probies, and I'm like, all right, I got to go a different way because whoever, whoever I'm on the phone, they're going to hear I'm getting yelled at, right? But people make way, and I'm just like, yeah. keep going, be quiet, keep going, um, or avoid <laughs> where they're going, because um, I don't spend a lot of time in my office when I'm here. I like to walk around and see what's going on. Um, there's always new firefighters here, so I love engaging with uh, with people when I'm when I don't have meetings at headquarters and stuff. Um, when we're doing live fire revolutions, I, I like to be out there watching it and just and interacting with people, right? So it's the connection that you have to the field um, every day at Education Day. 
either myself or the, um, or the acting chief of the fire academy, uh, Chuck Downey, we speak at education day and we talk to the, we talk to the field and, um, uh, and it's great. We give them an update on what's going on. Um, the leader's intent from headquarters, from the fire commissioner and chief department, uh, and chief of operations. And we tell them what's going on at Proby school, um, and at the fire academy. And then we answer any questions that they have. And, um, I don't always have the answers, but I tell them, I will get you the answer before you leave here today. And if I can't do it by then, I'll email your company, but you'll get the information. Um, and, um, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that goes on, um, in the fire service and in the department, the size of the FDNY that they may not always know the reason behind why something's being done. And, you know, so if they ask the question or I'm able to provide that, that insight to them, then it, then they, it's, it's better all around. Then they understand that, that there was a reason for whatever decision was made or whatever policy was implemented or, or something, or even a change in, in fire fighting procedures. I mean, I love going in there and talking about, you know, the, you know, our new multiple dwelling uh, procedures or the edits to different documents or talking tactics on stretching a, a hand line. I could, you know, uh, I'll stay in there all day when we start talking about that stuff. Um, and then eventually I wind up talking about cancer in the fire service because that's a, that's a big issue. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm, I'm tired of seeing my, uh, my friends die. Um, and not just 9-11, you know, non-9-11 firefighters as well. So I always, in, I always talk about that as well because I think that's critically important for the, for the fire service to make sure that, that that's part of the conversation and, and part of your training. I couldn't agree more, especially when it comes to cancer, because I feel like so we always worry about the heart attacks, you know, on the high, you know, we, we lose a lot of brothers and sisters uh, on the fire ground due to you know heart attacks, heart related issues. But long term, cancer is coming for us. And what I don't understand and I, in my area, I, I, I see a little bit of this <clears throat> where people decide not to wear air packs during overhaul. They keep their dirty gear in the cab. Now, I'm not a fan of clean cab by any, any means, but I'm a fan of having a clean cab. If, you know, you understand? And then, uh, you know, they don't wear their air packs or an overhaul. They don't clean their gear. They don't take their showers. They don't do all the little things that are easy enough to do, you know, that they can lower that chances, you know, quite a bit, actually. What what do you all do uh, as a fire department to kind of to – to more proactive towards well, cancer. Well, and that's a good question. So it's, like you said, there's a lot of little things that you need to do, right? So um, after after an, after a fire, wash your gear, right? So um, like I'm not, I wrote an article on the clean cab about, you know, redefining the clean cab, but it's not about taking the SCBAs out of the crew cab. It's about making sure that we don't put dirty equipment in there um, or minimize the amount of dirty equipment that that's in there, right? So common sense, best practices, um, you know, when do we wash the bottom of our boots, uh, right? There's three times when we step in dog shit, have speedy dry on it, or have diesel fuel on it. <laughs> Otherwise, we never wash the bottom of our boots, right? So there's contamination there. How about the inside liner of your helmet? Most people have never washed the inside liner of your helmet. But if you go and wash the inside liner of your helmet the first time I did, the water looked like iced tea. Um, you know, so you're wearing a hood around your neck, and it's, and it's dirty, right? Um, and it's sitting right on your thyroid. It sits here and here. So thyroid cancer is one of the number one cancers right now. It's the number one cancer in non-911 responders in the FDNY. Um, you know, just little things like that, washing your hands before you go to the bathroom, right? Because testicular cancer double the rate of the general population. Um, just there's so many little things. Not packing, you know, we after the fire, we start packing the hose and we take our gloves off and we're touching, 
with touching contaminated hose with our bare hands. Why are we letting our God down then? And yeah, you know, leaving the SCBA on longer. Sure. If you could wear your mask a little, 30 every fire you go to just wear it 30 seconds longer than the last time. Just think, I'm going to just leave it on a little bit longer. Yeah. I still have air. Why am I not keeping it on? It just doesn't make sense. Um, but there's a lot of those little right. tactical nuances. You're at a car fire, right? And um, you're there, uh, engine in a truck, and the engine is getting water, and the truck's in there. The fire is uh, roaring out from the car, and they're in there trying to force the trunk. Let the engine take a tactical pause. Put the let the engine knock it down. You know, uh, we joke around. When's the last time you saw a bought up company bought up a car? It's a garbage fire. At that point, if there's, <laughs> if there's no exposure problem and there's no victims, it's a garbage fire. It's going to be salvage. And we're in there. Sometimes you see videos on YouTube or whatever, and whether they're not wearing the SCBA or they're in there trying to force entry um, for for no reason. Because even if you have your even if you have your air pack on, right? You're getting all that stuff all over your gear unnecessarily, right? So now, are you sending your gear out after that? Probably not. Not too many people are sending it out after a car fire. But you can minimize the exposure, just like a dumpster fire. Use the reach of the stream to best protect ourselves. It doesn't. It just doesn't make sense when we see some of the tactics that we're that we're employing. Um, and, and we could we could do better, Absolutely. right? It's just, but it's personal accountability for yourself because the little steps that you could take now. Um, make big, make a big difference. And there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that you can do, but there's a lot of little things. And the one thing for certain is that your future self will thank you. That's for sure. Absolutely. I always say, tell my guys that, you know, you'll never be on your deathbed weighing 75 pounds with your family, watching you slowly die, being sad and miserable. And you're never going to say, well, at least I didn't have to wear my air pack. At least I didn't have to, you know, clean my gear. You'd give anything in the world to go back in time and, and do those things to, to and that, not to mention, you know, getting your physicals, annual physicals, and, and knowing, having a good relationship with your doctor where they know what to look for as a firefighter. You know, all these things are stuff that we can do proactively to lessen that chances. And God forbid we do get it, hopefully help us fight it better. Couldn't have said it better myself. You're 100 percent right. I mean, these are just just such little things that we can that we can do, no doubt. Absolutely. So let me end on this, okay? Uh, tell me a little bit about the Firehouse Expo coming up and Fire Service Cornerstones of Success training and team. Well, so I'll be the keynote speaker at uh, Firehouse Expo in Columbus at the in the end of September. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's it's really all about um, training and teamwork. And you can even throw in their mentorship uh, and how how that all matters, especially on game day. Um, you certainly don't ever want to be unprepared, right? When when someone when someone is at the window um, or you're you're at the fire and you're able to save a life and your training lets you down, it's don't make it be because of a lack of training, right, or lack of preparation. Um, we could go, you could go years without having to um, perform in the Super Bowl or, or um, you know, there's a reason Derek Jeter takes ground balls every single, you know, would take ground balls every single day to maintain his readiness. And, you know, could you, you know, if you're not ready on game day and, you know, we, we saw it in the fire in the Bronx um, where we lost 17 people. I mean, I look at, I, I, I was at that fire, I wound up being the incident commander at that fire. Um, you know, roughly 22 minutes in and the Herculean effort that, that our people were putting forth because they were ready, because they trained. And it was 
decades worth of preparation. Um, the, the members in the Bronx and, and there were members from all over the city, both in fire and EMS, they didn't just wake up that Sunday morning and suddenly be good at what they do. Um, uh, one of the commanders up, up in the Bronx, he called me a couple of days later and um, uh, he was thanking me and, and, and praising the operation uh, and, and praising me. And I'm like, I said, man, I said, so this credit belongs to you more than it belongs to me. I said, you have set the standard up up there and with your units for so long that they perform at a high level. So, um, you know, when's the best time to plant the tree? A hundred years ago. When's the second best time today? Um, and if, if you're not training and preparing for the next response, um, you know, when the response comes in, preparation, the time to, the time to prepare is over. Um, and you either got it or you don't have it. And our members, our, um, our winning mindset, our desire to win, um, on every run of every day in the FDNY is simply part of our culture. And when you talk about teamwork, we spoke about that quite a bit today, um, the teamwork even extends after after the fire. I had someone ask me the other day about you know the line after after a fire. Every every member jumps on the hose line, and and when we're packing it, every everybody's there doing that. And um, at the Bronx fire, I took a picture of it. I take a lot of pictures for training purposes. I'm always taking pictures, but I took a picture of that because our members looked they their look was of defeat because we played a win, but. Um, even though we lost all those people there, and that was the headline, the headline should have been that the, it should have been that the FDNY rescued over a hundred people from that building, right? But when you play to when when you have that winning mindset and you play to win, and you lose seventeen people, it hurts when we lose one. Now we lost seventeen, and like to, for for my firefighters to know that, you know, sometimes. The, regardless of the, the dedication, the work, the effort, um, the Herculean, the heroic effort that was going on there, both inside and outside the building. I knew it was going on inside the building, standing up from the outside, but I was witnessing uh, the heroics in front of me, both from fire and EMS units doing CPR on, on dozens of people, um, knowing what was going on inside, knowing that what they were doing inside. Um, but it's because their training didn't let them down because they were able to lean on their training because they were able to operate in the gray areas of our procedures, right? Our procedures don't fully define everything. And that's a good thing. We earn our money in the gray area. And that's why understanding the why, that's why the understanding of what we do matters and matters greatly on game day because that time to prepare is finished and it's test time. And we excelled at that test on that day as we often do, even though we didn't achieve the results that we optimally would have wanted, which is no fire deaths, right? No firefighter ever wants to go to a fire that people die, right? That's just, that's just, why, that's just not what we're about. So when we lose anybody, uh, especially a child, it hurts. And our people were hurting. And when I took that picture, they were hurting. And I'm looking at them. We're still doing what we do. We're a team. But normally after that, our guys are talking, our folks are talking to each other because it's the guy from, you know, the firefighter from 48 engine would be talking to the guy from 90 engine and they'd be talking about their families or whatever. Maybe they went to probie school or they remember each other from a detail or they're in the same battalion and nobody was talking. 
Nobody was talking. They all had that blank stare on their face. But it wasn't because of their effort. It wasn't because of their dedication to the profession, to the FDNY, and the civilians that they're sworn to protect. But they were ready. Could you imagine if they weren't ready? Wow. That, yeah. That, that's one of the things that I always struggle trying to get my point across is that you don't, you don't prepare the day of the fire. You, all the preparations done before. And so many people, since they've gone to fires, haven't got any firefighters hurt or lost a large amount of people like that. They base their failures or their success on lack of failure. And it's, it's one of those things that the job will humble you someday. If you don't realize that just because you've had success up to this point doesn't mean that you've done everything right. Right. So to your point, preparation is everything. Training is everything. You know, waiting for that day to where hopefully, you know, they they have they have that teamwork. They have that training uh, to do the job to, to the level, which is of, why we got to advocate for funding. Right. So the uniform always has to advocate for funding and for training because, you know, um, most firefighters go an entire career and never make a grab. Right. Yet most most firefighters, if you're dedicated to the craft, mm-hmm. you're ready. And that's why we're on game day. We perform because we're ready, even though you've been, you know, sometimes a rescue is 15 years in the making. A firefighter with 15 years on the job goes to medal day because he rescued a, a young man in a fire. Right. It wasn't because he didn't have to do it for 15 years. He just had the opportunity and was ready to perform when the situation presented itself. And, you know, so um, sometimes the moments that matter the most are the ones that never happen. Um, so when we when we think that um, sometimes we can't quantify it because nothing, you know, we, we saved the life or we extinguished the fire fast enough where um, it didn't extend or, or the building didn't collapse or whatever happened. But um, it begins, it's why training is the cornerstone. As training goes, so goes your department. And when we stop training, um, there's one thing for certain that you can cut training for a year or two years and maybe save a couple of dollars, but you will pay it back with dividends at some point. And that happens in civilian deaths and civilian injuries and sometimes firefighter injuries and firefighter deaths. It's cheaper to train and prevent as many of those as we can, but it has to start with the uniform advocating for the importance of that and educating anybody that they need to and being the cheerleader to make sure that training never stops. Every day is a training day. Stay learnable your entire career. Stay humble your entire career and know that the second you think you know it all, you will be humbled. And it doesn't matter where you work. Wow. That's, I'm just kind of, without words right now, you're absolutely right, sir. Absolutely right. And, and, wow. Yep. Yes, sir. I don't, it's amazing. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being on here. I appreciate you. I know you're busy. And I, really I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity. So and um, Jake, I always have time for guys that are as passionate about the job um, as I am. So I appreciate appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate that you came here um, uh, to teach that class with with our members. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that you get to come here and teach again with some future classes that we may have in the works. <laughs> Crossing my fingers, sir. Crossing my fingers. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for your time.